0: A chance to feel like
1: heroes will and we lose, we Someday we'll go yeah, out we'll Welcome back to Holy Cow, a Cubs Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Holland. Our guest on this episode is Don Zaminda, who has written a new book on Harry Carey. The legendary Harry Carey, baseball's greatest salesman. And it, I interviewed him about his book and basically just about Harry Carey, which, of course, if you're a listener to the, um, this podcast, you know I'm a fan of Harry Carey. I mean, it's called Holy Cow. Uh, but we just go into a lot of the great stories about Harry over the years, and it's really interesting and to hear about his um, time with the Cardinals and White Sox before he became the Cubs announcers. And uh, this book is available now, and I really think you should... Check it out. It's a very interesting book. And if you're interested in Harry Carey though, you should really uh, give it a look. So here is Don. Don, welcome to Holy Cow, a Cubs podcast. I'm glad to have you on. Great to be with you, sir. And as you can tell by the title of my podcast, I am familiar with Harry Carey, so that should make this a little easier. I never would have guessed. Um, all right, so you've written this new book the legendary Harry Carey, baseball's greatest salesman. And obviously Cubs fans know a lot about the end of Harry's story, but they probably don't know much about the beginning of his story. So I thought I'd ask you about his early years where he was, of course, born Harry Carabini, Carabini, not Harry Carey. But I thought I'd ask you about his um, early life.
0: Sure. He was born in St.
1: Louis in uh,
0: 1914. Harry was always cagey about his age. He gave, at one point I think they said he gave seven different years for the year he was born. But we've discovered through geological records that he was born in 1914. Uh, his parents were poor immigrants from Europe. Um, they were actually, his father was Italian um, by nationality, but they were actually born in Albania came over as immigrants, and uh, his father went away to World War One, never came back. They are never quite sure what happened to him. Uh, he may have stayed in Europe, may have been killed in the war, but they don't really know. Um, so Harry was brought up by his mother, and then his mother died when he was 14 years old, and he was raised by uh, aunts and uncle, and the uncle left. So uh, he had a pretty difficult childhood, um, went to high school in St. Louis, um, never went to college, um, and just started working on various jobs. And then when he was in his 20s, um, he got the idea that he wanted to be a radio broadcaster. Uh, he used to go to a lot of St. Louis Cardinals and Browns games, and he was always convinced that the actual games were much more exciting than the broadcast that you he heard on the radio. So, Harry was never shy about uh, asserting himself, so he went to the owner of one of the radio stations in St. Louis and said, I can do a great job broadcasting the Cardinals game better than the guys you got now. And the um, station manager gave him an audition. He was pretty impressed, um, but felt that Harry, since he was a beginner in the radio field, needed some seasoning. So... He actually got his first job in uh, Joliet, um, southwest of the city, for a small radio station. From there, he went to Kalamazoo, Michigan, for about a year or so. And this was, by this time, World War II had started, and Perry felt that he might get drafted, so he went back to St. Louis. Um, Fortunately, probably for all concerned, he flunked his draft physical and uh, got a radio job at a fairly major St. Louis radio station and the next year he started recording he started doing um, Cardinals and Browns games and he just took off from there stayed with the Cardinals for 25 years before he went to the White Sox or first to the Oakland A's and then to the White Sox
1: yeah so and for those who don't know I guess it kind of if you're guessing why did Harry uh flunk his physical yes it was because of um, his eyesight and of course, he had the very thick Absolutely. glasses later in life, so that yeah. Makes no sense. surprise there. Yeah. All right. So now he was with the Cardinals for a long time, like you said, until uh, 1960s, late 60s. Right? When did he leave the Cardinals? Yeah. 19, 1969 was his last year with the Cardinals,
0: and it was his 25th season with the team. And. Uh, Toward the end of his last year, uh, they started hearing rumors that uh, Harry was going to be on the outs, which was a shock to many people, but there was a story going around that he was involved in a relationship with the um, wife of Gussie Bush's son. It's never been proven whether there was anything going on or not, but a lot of people believe that the people at the brewery, the Budweiser people on the Cardinals... Kind of felt that Harry wasn't, his reputation wasn't too good for their company, which is pretty straight laced. And he'd also had some other problems that convinced them that he was kind of nearing the end of his run. Plus, at that time, Jack Buck was Harry's number two guy with the Cardinals. And Jack Buck is a terrific announcer in his own right. And, you know, they felt that if Harry happened to leave, that Jack could take over and it wouldn't be any loss at all or really not much of a loss. So at the end of that season they just decided not to renew his contract. He went out to Oakland to broadcast with the Oakland A's under Charlie Finley. That was an interesting experiment. Um, The two guys actually got along a lot better than a lot of people thought they might have. Two guys with fairly big egos and both people who kind of wanted to run their own operation But Harry was a Midwest guy. He wanted to come back to the Midwest, and he got an opportunity with the White Sox in 1970, and he came north at the start of the '71 season and was there for 11 years.
1: So I was going to ask, too, that there's this famous story about when he leaves the Cardinals. He has a press conference where he's conspicuously drinking a beer that is not a Budweiser. But I just wanted you to tell a little bit about that. Uh, press conference,
0: there's a yeah. funny story. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he, you have to understand that, that Harry was, as he would be later with the Cubs, totally identifies with Budweiser and the Budweiser brand. I mean, <clears throat> you know, at his best, nobody could sell beer like Harry. So he was very upset when the Cardinals didn't renew his contract. And he had a press conference at a bar in St. Louis and was prominently drinking cans of Schlitz beer, which was was Budweiser's major competitor. Harry felt bad about that later, but it certainly got the point across that he wasn't too happy with with what had happened.
1: Yeah, so now, as you said, he goes to the White Sox as as an announcer, and that was some interesting times for the White Sox. I mean, famously, Disco Demolition Night and all the stuff with the Beck family You know, running the White Sox. So what are some some interesting stories or an interesting story uh, you can tell from his White Sox days? Well, I mean, there
0: was never a dull moment with the White Sox. Uh, When he got there, uh, the White Sox were on the verge of bankruptcy. There was a lot of talk that they were going to leave town. Uh, The Sox were so bad with their attendance that they were actually playing games in Milwaukee uh, until the Brewers started in 1970. And their attendance the last year before Harry came over was under 500,000 for the whole season. So Harry really pumped life into the franchise. It was really in Chicago with the White Sox that he popularized sitting in the bleachers for doing games. Uh, He started doing that. Anytime the White Sox had a Wednesday afternoon day game at home, he would do the games from the bleachers. And I've actually got some recordings of those games, and it's... It's crazy. He's interacting with the fans. He's drinking beer. He's joking it up. It's, it's like a big party. And those games became so popular that the most popular seats in the ballpark were the ones where people could get close to Harry because it was so much fun. It was with the White Sox in 1976 that he actually started the tradition of saying, take me out to the Ball game." at during the seventh inning stretch. By then, Bill Vec had bought the team, and Vec knew that Harry would sing along when Nancy Faust, the organist, had played Take take Me Out to the Ballgame. So one night, he just decided to turn on the PA system while Harry was singing. All of a sudden, Harry's voice goes out to the whole ballpark. The fans went nuts. And that was how that particular tradition was born. So he had a lot of fun there, but there were also some some pretty difficult times and some pretty tough relationships between Harry and, and the ownership of the team before Beck came in. He called the owner of the White Sox, John Allen, an idiot. Uh, he feuded with players like Bill Melton, who was one of the White Sox's biggest stars. Harry was so down on Bill Melton that Melton was finally traded to the Angels, and when he got traded, he said... If I hadn't been traded, I probably would have quit because of Harry because I couldn't take it anymore. So it was really kind of a crazy adversarial relationship. And then in 1977, the White Sox brought Jimmy Pearsall, who was a totally crazy guy and totally unpredictable person as Harry's broadcast partner, and those games were just nuts. I talked to Ron Raffleport who has just recently written a very nice biography of Ernie Banks. Ron was a St. Louis, he was a a Chicago Sun-Times reporter at the time, and he said there was so much going on with Kerry and Pearsall that they would have somebody at the Sun-Times actually listening to the games just in case those guys went off and and did something crazy that that they'd need to write about it in the paper the next morning. I mean, that was just wild and crazy times. And and disco demolition kind of came in toward the end of it, but that kind of fit in with the atmosphere with the White Sox when Harry was there.
1: All right, so uh, how how did the big move from the White Sox to the Cubs go down?
0: Well, what happened was Bill Veck was really running out of money. So he tried to sell the team to a guy named Edward G. Bartolo, who was a a big uh, Cleveland guy. His family actually owned a couple of sports teams, including the 49ers. The American League didn't want him. So Harry ended up, or, um, uh, Beck ended up selling the team to Jerry Reinstorf and Eddie Einhorn. And Einhorn was a TV guy. And Einhorn had the idea of putting the White Sox on pay cable. I mean, he, he was actually a visionary. It was probably the right idea, but it was absolutely too early for the time. And they, were, they did the games with Harry for one year on local Chicago TV stations. But the second year, Einard wanted to bring in a paid cable, cable channel called Sports Vision, where people would have to pay like $20, 25 a month to watch the White Sox games. And they were interested in bringing Harry back, but Harry knew he was going to lose a lot of his audience if he went to that paid cable station. And he knew it was a big risk. And he said he wouldn't do it unless they gave him a multi-year contract. And the White Sox wouldn't offer him more than a year or two. And Harry just thought it wasn't worth it. So in the meantime, he started talking to the Cubs. And interestingly, people at the Cubs weren't sure that they wanted to hire Harry. A lot of them, this was when WGN had owned the Cubs for about a year or two, and WGN was a pretty straight-laced operation, the Tribune company certainly was, and especially with things being so crazy with Harry and the White Sox, they weren't sure that Harry was the right guy to bring over to Wrigley Field, but unfortunately there were a couple people in, in the Cubs front office that said, no, you bring him over, Harry's going to sell the team, he's going to sell Wrigley Field, he's going to sell the whole experience, And it just worked like magic, really, right from the
1: start. Yeah, so obviously he comes over the Cubs, and the Cubs become, you almost want to say a national phenomenon. I mean, their ratings from, like, when just shoot through the roof. Of course, they weren't on WGN for long. Like you said, they just the Tribune bought the team in 81, but about 84, I mean, you've got Harry teaming up with a really good team, and they become like a national fad.
0: Well, well, they did. I mean, Harry's timing going with the Cubs was great um, because in the late 70s, when cable television started coming in, um, the cable operators were desperate for content, anything to show during the day in particular. So first, Ted Turner with the Braves started broadcasting his games coast to coast, basically giving away the games for free, and just doing a revenue share with with the uh, sponsorship money. And WGN did the same thing with the Cubs games. And that was right about the time that Harry came in. All of a sudden Harry became this national celebrity. He was doing local games that were being broadcast coast to coast. And uh, there was actually nobody better to sell the whole experience of what a fun time it was to go to a game at Wrigley Field. You know, this was before the lights came in so it was still all day games at home and and he just brought that whole atmosphere to life plus as you said 1984 the Cubs suddenly, suddenly had a good team it was an exciting colorful team and Harry was the guy that sold that team
1: yeah so now I was going to ask about uh, this dynamic with Steve Stone which is a lot different than the Jimmy Pearsall dynamic but it's something I remember as a kid when I was watching the games but it was Steve Stone, was, was he there from the start with Harry for the Cubs? or?
0: He was not. They actually had um, Milo Hamilton um, the first couple years, and Harry and Milo were kind of arch enemies. So after the first year, they basically switched Milo to radio to succeed Vince Lloyd. Um, but then when they did that, that was when they brought Stone in. And Stone and Harry really clicked right from the start. But as you said, it was it was a much different relationship um, than it was with Harry and Jimmy Pearsall. I mean, Jimmy was as wild and crazy as Harry could be, whereas Stone was a more down to earth broadcaster, very on top of the game, really knew the game back and forth. But he would let Harry really be the act as far as you know doing fun stuff, and that really clicked right from the start.
1: Yeah. So now, of course, there's, I think a lot of people know this, but I don't know if everyone knows this about the family tree for Harry. His son, Skip, of course, a legendary Braves announcer, and his grandson, Chip, of course, went on to be the Cubs announcer eventually, but he had a very, you know, as with, he didn't have much contact with his father. Uh, Harry didn't exactly have a ton of contact with Skip or Chip.
0: Yeah, that's really true. Um, He he was divorced uh, for the first time when Chip was about 10 years old, and, or Skip was about 10 years old, and and Harry and Skip really didn't see each other very much because, especially when Harry went to Chicago, um, his family was in a different part of the country, and they really didn't see one another very much. Um, And the same thing was true of of his grandson, Chip. I, I talked to Chip Um, quite a bit for the book. And I also talked to to Dutchie, um, Harry's Widow. And, you know, Chip told me that Harry was really good at being the life of the party and and interacting with fans, but he had a lot of difficulty relating to his own family in part because he didn't get much time to spend with them, but also with the kind of childhood background, being an orphan and and not really coming from a two-parent household. Harry had a lot of difficulty relating to his own kids and his own grandkids. Uh, Fortunately, as time passed, and particularly after he got um, connected with Dutchie, she really had a big effect on him and and helping him become much more of a family man. And as you certainly remember, his last year, they announced that Harry was going to be broadcasting with Chip. And unfortunately, um, Harry died in the off-season before they could work together
1: yeah that was yeah it was a big deal at the time that everyone was like it's gonna be you know uh grandfather and grandson and no one had ever seen it before but yeah unfortunately he he didn't make it to the 98 season but um so I was gonna ask what's the story that maybe people don't know about Harry because I mean I've talked about a lot of the stories that everyone knows but what's something that that you know would surprise people about him
0: Well, one story that I got a kick out of was uh, I talked to a guy named Al Lerner, who's an old uh, Chicago media personality, and he told me that in the early 80s, when Harry started to become a celebrity, he was starting to get uh, endorsement opportunities. So a beverage company that was located in Chicago decided to come out with a beverage called Holy Cow uh, in different flavors. And so they had a big ceremony where they were going to launch the beverage. And with the name of the beverage, they thought it would be a cute idea for to have Harry stand with a cow and just kind of lead the cow by the rope and, and walk a few steps and, and just sort of promote the idea that this was holy cow beverage. And Al earlier told me that Harry was definitely afraid of the cow, wouldn't go near him, and Al had to do the leading of the cow himself and that kind of spoiled the launch of the beverage and ended up not being successful. But but I got a kick out of the the idea that the guy whose trademark saying was holy cow was actually afraid of actual cows.
1: Yeah, that's pretty good. Maybe that's why he yelled holy cow. He's frightened. Who knows? (laughs) That could be. All right, so I'll ask you one more question. Uh, What do you think the legacy of Harry Carey is? Because it's been about 20 years since he died. What it you know, now looking back on it through time?
0: You know, I think he was just somebody who sold the fun of baseball, you know, better than almost anybody that I could ever think of. You know, you'd watch a game with Harry or listen to him on the radio, he just made the whole game come alive. Bob Cassis talked about what a great technical broadcaster Harry was. He was very good at. not so much toward the end but at his peak he was fantastic at at describing a game but more than that he just brought a game to life he made the game fun for anybody who was watching or listening and it just created so many baseball fans and the subtitle of the book is Baseball's Greatest Salesman and that's really what Harry was there was never anybody like him I don't think there ever will be anybody quite
1: like him yeah and I mean, like, I mean, the impact he's had, like, for just generations of Cubs fans. I mean, like, I, well, they we still play his clips during Cubs games in the seventh inning stretch. I mean, it's and it gets the biggest reaction out of any guest they ever have singing it. The biggest reaction you get from the fans is still the tape of Harry Carey singing "Take Me Out to the Ball Game."
0: That's really true. That tradition will never die, and it's because of Harry.
1: All right, well, uh, thank you for coming on here. The book, again, is The Legendary Harry Carey, Baseball's Greatest Salesman. And we just touched uh, just a few of the crazy stories that uh, Harry had over the years. So if you like that, there's more in the book that you should uh, definitely check it out. When does the book come out? Uh,
0: It's been out since mid-April, and it should be available uh, in any book venue.
1: Okay, so... You can pick it up now, and I know I haven't even finished reading it, but I'm looking forward to reading the whole thing, and uh, thank you for coming on, Don. Thank you, Sean. As always, you can follow me at STH85 on Twitter. Email the podcast, holycowpod at gmail.com. Uh, we are available on iTunes. Just look up Holy Cow Cubs Podcast in the iTunes store, and it'll come up and You can subscribe, and you can rate and review my podcast. I've been getting some ratings, so that's nice. You can review it, too, if you've got any specific comments for me. Uh, Like I said, Don Zaminda's book, uh, The Legendary Harry Carey, Baseball's Greatest Salesman, is available pretty much everywhere. I mean, if you went on Amazon and search for uh, the title for The Legendary Harry Carey, you should find it. So check out his book. It's available now. And until the next episode, thank you for listening.